0: And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including our own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
1: Lloyd, today our show is about hate on the Internet. And we have a wonderful guest that's coming back to us who's been on our show before, Christopher Wolf, and he is now the author with Abraham Foxman of this incredible book called Viral Hate, containing its spread on the Internet. And I wanted to read um, one of the, uh, the former press secretary to President Clinton, who um, is a partner in Public Strategies, Washington, and I wanted to read what he wrote about this book. He said, Abe Foxman and Chris Wolf have done a remarkable job in viral hate, of balancing important concerns about freedom of expression with a blunt look at how the internet can distort those freedoms to undermine a democratic society that we cherish. This is a significant book that will provoke discussion and the good news is that it is thoroughly readable as well. And that's what I found too. So I'm so thrilled that that we have with us one of the authors, Christopher Wolf. Let me tell you a little bit about his background. If you have heard him before, he was a great guest and that's why we wanted him back again. Christopher Wolf is the director of the Hogan Lovell's Privacy and Information Management Practice Group, which is a law firm in Washington DC and other places. Chris is widely recognized as one of the leading American legal practitioners in the field of privacy and data security law. Chris has deep experience in the entire range of international, federal, and state privacy and data security laws, also financial and health information privacy laws. And he's done quite a bit with the EU directive and various um, state data security laws, including those in Massachusetts and Nevada. In addition, drawing on his nearly 30 years as a litigator, Chris represents clients in all kinds of privacy and data protection and data security lit- litigation. And this, uh, this is an important area. As you know, we're just seeing data information and big data and all sorts of issues in data privacy and security breaches all over the place. So you can find out more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see his picture, download his this podcast you can also listen to the archived interview right there and you can also link to his website at hoganlevels.com that's h-o-g-a-n-l-o-v-e-l-l-s.com thank you so much chris for joining us
2: Mari, thanks for having me again It's really good to be back on your show
1: well this is a wonderful book so what what inspired you to to write this book with adam abraham rather
2: Well, uh, I've been involved with the work of the Anti-Defamation League uh, for about 25 years. Uh, The ADL is one of the country's leading civil rights organizations. It it was founded 100 years ago, and its mission then and now uh, is to uh, fight anti-Semitism and to promote justice and fair treatment for all. The ADL was founded in the wake of the lynching of uh, Leo Frank, it actually was founded slightly before, but really came into its, its, uh, its current uh, form as a major national civil rights agency after that event in 1913 and has dealt with every uh, social issue the country has faced over the years, uh, fighting discrimination and prejudice of, of all kinds. And so it was only natural that when the Internet came along, the Anti-Defamation League needed to address it, because just as all of us adopted the Internet as an amazing tool of uh, information and communication, education, entertainment, so did the haters. Uh, They used to meet uh, down uh, dark alleys and, and distribute their materials mostly between one another in plain brown wrappers, and like the rest of us, they were able to become instant publishers around the world. And so the ADL viewed that development as a as a major part of its mission, to combat hate and to promote justice and fair treatment. And so as early as 1986, believe it or not, the ADL was involved. They issued a report uh, called Bulletin Boards of Hate, uh, which tells you what kind of technology was being right, used at the right, time. Right. And Uh, To fast-forward a little bit, in 1995, I became chair of the Internet Task Force of the ADL and have chaired that group ever since. Uh, I'm now the National Civil Rights Chair of the ADL, and so when Abe Foxman, who has written about social justice and and, uh, civil rights issues uh, repeatedly, Uh, approached me about co-authoring this book with him, I jumped at the opportunity. I should probably tell you a a little bit about uh, Abe, because his background is really interesting. Okay. He he is a Holocaust survivor. He was uh, rescued by his Catholic nanny as an infant and raised by her for four or five years
0: uh, Mm. at the beginning
2: of the Holocaust. His parents miraculously survived. They were reunited, and he came to the United States. Uh, went to college, went to yeshiva, and then to law school, and has been with the ADL since 1966. And while mm-hmm. I think he would be the first to admit he's not the most technologically proficient uh, of people, as is true of many people of his generation, he recognizes the power of the of the Internet for good and for ill, and uh, for that reason teamed up with me to address the issues that we talk about in the book.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. I One of your chapters here is, Hate Doesn't Just Hurt, It Kills. Let's talk a little bit about that, because that's really the, the crux of how insidious this, this kind of hate on the Internet is all about, right?
2: Well, that's right. Uh, you know, as Abe puts it, as a Holocaust survivor, the, the Holocaust did not start with the ovens at the concentration camps. It started with words. Yes. W- words of propaganda, words of, uh, of discrimination, uh, words of belittlement. Uh, that conditioned people in society to think a certain way and ultimately to act a certain way. Sadly, uh, and even today, while we have the powerful tools of counter speech that we'll talk about in a moment, where hopefully truth gets out, because the internet is uh, is such a huge platform, words of hate uh, are also getting out in almost every way you can imagine, uh, from from web- websites to social media to video games to online games. Uh, uh, and, and to e-commerce sites you know, And you think of any part of the internet And you'll find hate speech kind of seeping in there
1: Yeah, and we're seeing I know that teenagers are killing themselves Over what is being said about them on the internet Or what the kind of hate stuff that's going on This is this is religious It's It's bullying It is just overwhelming, isn't it? Well-
2: yeah, cyberbullying is, is a huge problem it's an area in which the anti-defamation League has been a leader we drafted the first model anti-cyberbullying statute that doesn't prescribe speech or, 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 or proscribe speech I should say but rather you know requires schools to have uh, uh, programs in place to address uh, cyberbullying one of the instances we cite in the book is the, uh, the uh, episode involving Tyler Clemente, who was the student at Rutgers. And You may remember, right. your listeners will remember, that uh, his roommate spied on him through a webcam yes. uh, in, a, in a romantic encounter with another guy. Right. Uh, interestingly, that was not broadcast on the Internet, but humiliating tweets about Tyler Clemente were broadcast uh, by his roommate. Uh, that so affected uh, Clementi that he committed suicide, and and there are examples all the time about uh, words actually inflicting such pain on people that they that they do harm to themselves or kill themselves. But even beyond the physical uh, uh, infliction uh, that that it may cause, it it causes enormous emotional distress. And one of the issues that we address in the book is kind of the equivalent of online pollution. Yes. That all of us are subject to to the despoiling of the internet. You look at news stories, for example, ordinary news stories. The comments that follow them uh, almost inevitably contained epithets and obscenities and uh, ridiculously off, ridiculous, off-topic comments uh, that are hate-filled. Yes, uh, you know John Oliver, who was guest hosting The Daily Show during the summer. Uh, showed a YouTube video of a kitten playing with a stream of water from a faucet, saying, isn't that cute? Then he scrolled down, and and there was an uh, obscenity-laced epithet directed to the president. It was also racially motivated. Mm. Uh, Just a perfect example of how this stuff gets out there, and it really serves no purpose uh, except to make it a, a, a much less civil place, at the very least, and a very harmful place at most.
1: Right. So what kind of solutions are you and Abraham suggesting?
2: Well, this isn't an easy issue to deal with, particularly since, uh, as you referenced in the in the very kind review of the book by Mike McCurry, um, uh, the ADL and Abe and I are uh, the, the strongest possible uh, proponents of the First Amendment and of free expression. Right. Uh, and... We certainly don't think that there should be anything that legally restricts speech beyond what is legally restricted today. Obviously, not all speech is allowed today. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater, nor can you make specific threats to a specific individual uh, and get away with it or libel them or use their intellectual property. So the First Amendment is not absolute. But what we don't want is is, uh, lawmakers, governments deciding what qualifies as hate speech, because that's a power that can be perverted pretty easily and, and used to stifle legitimate uh, dissent. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that can be done to, to deal with the problem of online hate speech, and it's a shared responsibility, we think, among the platforms that host hate speech as well as the users of hate speech.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
2: We think there, there are lots of things that can be done.
1: So, so let's talk about some of the things that that are causing this in our society. This isn't just America, right? This is happening all over the world, or is it? A- would you say it's worse in in the United States?
2: No, I think it's a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, wherever you find internet users, you find people either uh, posting hateful websites or posting hate filled comments, or using social media to form groups to attack other um, to attack uh, minorities. Uh, you find it in every language and all over the world,
1: and so part of it is is the attention they get or the power. wouldn't you say that when someone can can say something like this and it, say it anonymously and have that power to to just um, you know hurt someone else that that gives them power perhaps so what what is the the root cause of this? Is this a psychological thing? Is it a social thing? What, what is this all about? I know well, we, the ADL has worked on that for years.
2: We actually cite some psychologists in the book who, mm-hmm. who say that uh, the, the, uh, the distance and anonymity that is made possible by the internet, and, and you, you, either one or the other, or both sometimes, uh, provides a certain level of empowerment where people uh, feel somehow uh, uh, more powerful by attacking others, and they're egged on by their fellow haters to do that. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they're really taught online or convinced online that it's perfectly acceptable uh, to do what they, were, what they are doing, and in, in its worst uh, formulation, it, it goes from uh, online to offline and really turns into a, physical attacks on people, and we've seen that happen um, as well. And you know, the issue of anonymity is an interesting one, because anonymity has played an an enormously important role in our history of uh, facilitating legitimate political dissent. Think of Thomas Paine and the anonymous pamphleteers during the revolutionary times. Uh, And you think today of people using anonymity to uh, explore ideas and to express themselves because they don't want to be uh, associated or identified. So for the... A uh, conflicted teenager who's exploring his or her sexual orientation, going online anonymously is is not only uh, okay; it, it's 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 really empowering. It allows them to get information that they need to make uh, decisions for themselves.
1: Right, and when we have people who are, you know, dissidents or something, or or well, want to be able to be free, and they're not hurting someone else, but they're just trying to do, you know, have new ideas or or, you know, be able to ha- use their the democracy to speak their feelings about what's going on and, and not fear that they're going to be, you know, hurt by, the, retaliated, uh, yes. retaliated by some organization. Yeah, so, I mean, that's important, too. So what do and, we and, do and, about this and tension? Given
2: our, and given our field, it's a privacy-protecting tool as well. Yes,
1: yes, it is. Uh, but it also is
2: a tool that's used, or a a, a, a a means that is used by some to promote hate because they're not held accountable. They're not uh, they're not required to stand behind the things that they say.
1: Exactly. You know, I, I
2: noticed that this past summer, the Huffington Post announced that we would no longer accept anonymous comments.
1: Right. Right. The New York
2: Times a couple of years ago changed its po- its policy to uh, to give a higher ranking and more visibility the comments posted uh, by people who are willing to to be associated with them. And, of course, Facebook has a real-name policy. Right. Uh, and even on the pages that it hosts, which uh, where the administrators aren't always identified, if, if the pages start to cross a line, uh, Facebook will say, we want you to be identified or we're going to take down some of this uh, hate-filled content. Right. So we are convinced that uh, being associated with with the uh, things that you say and do online uh, serves to constrain hatred and, and offensive content. So we're not against anonymity, but we think it needs to be examined uh, in context to determine whether or not it is, is appropriate for particular sites or particular applications.
1: Right. I noticed on some of the listservs that I'm on that if somebody badmouths somebody else, and they know who you are because you're on a listserv and you have your name there, that um, that the whole group kind of attacks the person who's been the attacker that's at least in the attorney user groups that I'm on. So right. I thought that was that was uh, kind of like a peer pressure to be the right guy to be a good guy you know what I mean so that's something that I noticed that I thought was actually positive when somebody does say something hateful about uh, somebody else then um, it, it, it people keep you in line so that was well, kind we of didn't interesting. Do that.
2: We do see that online, and uh, you see it on Twitter uh, quite a lot. Uh, and that's really one of the things that we advocate, which is counter-speech. When you see right. something, say something is not a slogan that's restricted to bus stations and airports. Uh, but if you see hate speech, you shouldn't just let it slide by. Right. Then it, be- then it becomes the norm uh, or acceptable. Uh, you really should say something, and Twitter is a perfect place for that, where you can retweet something and say, not cool.
0: Right. Um,
2: uh, but we, we're we're hoping that the intermediaries will uh, provide other ways to to provide for counter speech, you know more than the thumbs up thumbs down, which most people use uh, to just indicate their disagreement with what's been said, not to really flag legitimate counter speech. right uh, legitimate hate speech rather. right,
1: right. So we have to make it cool to not speak with hate speech, right? We have to make at least for young people. To, to really transform them because I think they're most vulnerable to this and they're most uh, you know attached to this kind of power thing as they are with their peer group that if the peer group has power because of hate speech it kind of um is infectious so well, if we can right. and if we could make it infectious to be nice <laughs> you know, that would be helpful. How do you do that?
2: Well, you know, there's, I mean, you bring to mind the uh, the old Broadway songs, one from South Pacific, uh, you have to be carefully taught to hate.
1: Right. And
2: the <laughs> other one from Into the Woods, children will listen. Uh, you know, more seriously, I think children live what they learn. And you... We need much better cyber education generally, I think, to teach kids about the dangers online, also the harm they can do to themselves reputationally in terms of future education and job opportunities. But we also need to teach kids about cyber civility. Right. Uh, and, and there's very, very little of that going on in this country, and that, that's that's really a shame.
1: Yeah. So what role do you think education really does have? I mean, a lot of the teachers are not as savvy about cyber you know, all this cyber stuff going on as their students are. I mean, I think that's changing. I think even someone my age who really is pretty savvy, um, that more people are getting more savvy. But I don't know about the teachers. Do we need, what do we really need the teachers to be doing? And What do we need education to be doing?
2: So it has been generational, as you point out, and and parents have, to a very large extent, abdicated to their kids. You know, there's uh, a characterization that the kids are the digital natives and the parents, uh, people our age, are, are digital immigrants <laughs> because we learn technology as a second language. Right. Uh, but frankly, that's a cop-out, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, no parent would let their kid go out into the real world and walk into a bad neighborhood, and likewise, they shouldn't let their kids walk into a bad cyber neighborhood. Now, the solution used to be Having the family computer, this sounds really archaic, and yeah. polite, but yeah. having the family computer in the kitchen, you know, turned towards the dinette table so everybody could watch what was going on. Right. Now everybody has a computer in their pocket.
1: Right, right.
2: Uh, so it's very hard to, to, to monitor these things. And, and that's why teaching kids to be able to be their own filter, because filters also don't work very well. Uh, and to, to understand how first how to avoid and then how to respond to hate speech is really important and how not to perpetrate it.
1: Right. Right. You know, and I think this whole thing gets back, you know, coming from being a mediator for so many years and teaching conflict resolution, it kind of gets back to that whole idea of, of teaching peaceful resolution, teaching conflict resolution, teaching being, you know, pure mediation, we're not really doing enough of that. I did notice that now there's many universities that have conflict resolution as you can actually get a degree in that, which there never was when I was in college. But now right, right. they have that. But I'm thinking, you know, at the at the level of, you know, right from when kids are in preschool and kindergarten, learning how to speak to each other, learning how to deal with things. I think one of the problems is, is that so much is misunderstood when you're, when you're writing on the Internet. I refuse to mediate by, by the Internet. I'll only do it either by phone or in person because there's so much that's misinterpreted. Somebody can be just kidding online, and of course someone else takes it as it's real.
2: Sure. No, tone matters a lot, and you don't really get a chance in the, in, when things are, are written online to understand what tone is intended. And things tend to sound harsher regardless uh, of, of what's intended. Yes. And, and that's particularly true in comment sections, bulletin boards, social media, uh, and that sort of thing. So that's you know, one of the lessons that, that, that can be taught. And so, look, this is a call for, uh, first of all, the federal government to provide funding through the Department of Education to school systems uh, to teach it and for school systems to add it to their curriculum. Yes, uh, there, there are a couple of them in the country that have them have these kinds of uh, cyber literacy courses authorized, uh, but shockingly few actually implement it and have real uh, courses that uh, are, are appropriate to the grade levels. I mean, you you can't just teach it once in the fourth grade and let it go. It's something that needs to be repeated and it needs to be uh, adapted to to where the kids are in the educational process and also to where technology is because that's changing all the time.
1: Exactly, and it's it's tough because the schools don't have the money to do this. I know, for example, one of the guys I had on my other radio show, Azim Kamisa, um, his son was uh, in college and killed by a gang. And so he started um, a, a foundation to raise money to go into the schools for anti-gang teaching. And they've done tremendous work in San Diego, and that was a legacy to his son Tariq. That's terrific. Yeah. yeah. So you no, know, we almost uh, need to have someone like that. You know, who we need to have people coming out and maybe doing getting corporations to help fund it because I don't, I don't see where we're going to get the money to do this. Probably. Well, you
2: know, October seventh is the anniversary of Matthew Shepard's brutal killing in Wyoming for being yes. gay, and his mother has really taken the message of of tolerance and diversity. Uh, out there. The ADL has honored her a couple of times, uh, and it includes online tolerance of diversity. And so just as the ADL has added to its mission, this issue of fighting hate online, we think that any organization concerned with it ought to really focus on it. And I'm happy to say that we have a lot of allies and that together we've sat down with the intermediaries, mostly who are based in Northern California, regularly to discuss these issues and to try to come up with some common solutions that respect free expression but also address the issue. And one of the principal ways this gets addressed at the Facebooks of the world and at Google is uh, through kind of a notice and takedown. It's not like the, the DMCA for copyright, uh, but it's people complaining about content that violates the terms of service that almost every major online service provider has. Uh, and they also have staffs to look at these things. And to uh, to have people vigilant about making the complaints, but also have the services sensitive to the kind of the changing face of hate. What is hateful uh, today may not have been hateful two months ago, Uh, and so that it's kind of a nuanced decision.
1: So, who are these intermediary intermediaries that you're talking about, Chris?
2: So they are you know common household names for us these days. They are Facebook and Google and Twitter and Yahoo and Microsoft. And, you know, I'm, I must uh, do a shout-out especially to Facebook, which I think has been particularly sensitive to these issues and, and has worked very, very hard uh, to, to promote free expression but also to, to, to remove uh, uh, hate-filled content uh, when it's brought to their attention. Uh, and we've worked closely with them, also with Google. Uh, and Google's been creative. One of the, one of the issues we had... Was if you put in the uh, search word uh, "Jew" into a search into the Google search engine, uh, one of the very first uh, results was from a virulently anti-Semitic site called Jew Watch, mm. uh, and we asked them to change that, and we kind of knew that they wouldn't. Uh, because the algorithm is the algorithm, is, is their answer. But what they did do was provide a free sponsored link ad immediately adjacent to where that search result appeared uh, that said, you know, this search result contains hate speech. If you want to learn about hate speech and anti-Semitism, click here, and then, then, it, then they took you to www.adl.org.
1: Oh, that was good. It's giving that counter view.
2: Right. And again, counter speech really is, uh, is incredibly important. What, what what doesn't work, I just want to emphasize this again, because most people say, and this is the title of one of the chapters in our book, there ought to be a law. Right. Uh, and, and the law is just a gross instrument to deal with these kinds of things. And more importantly, and this is what I say to our European friends, where such laws are possible because they don't have the First Amendment, they simply don't work. And when you look at the volume of traffic on the Internet, 40,000 postings to Facebook every minute, 60 hours of video YouTube every minute, 300,000 tweets, you know, and, and isolated prosecution against one or two people
1: right. that,
2: you know, takes months or years to, to conclude is just not going to have the the, the effect, will not deal with the problem on scale in a way that, that needs to be dealt with.
1: No, no. So are you optimistic that things will get better?
2: I am. And I'm particularly optimistic since more and more people, including you, thank you very much, are paying attention to this issue. It's it's one that people have ignored for too long. Uh, At the beginning of the uh, Internet, way back in the mid-90s, at least the commercial Internet where uh, ordinary people had access to it, you know, the focus was was on child protection, and child predation which was perfectly appropriate and important, and it's still there. Uh, but we need to expand our view uh, as to, you know, what what hurts and doesn't hurt on the Internet uh, to make it a place where all of us can have access. You know, one of my colleagues in this field, Danielle Citron, who's a, both a privacy professor at the University of Maryland and someone who, can, you know, feels passionately about hate speech, she's got a new book coming out called Hate 3.0, talks about how hate online, particularly misogynistic hate towards women, uh, discourages them from using the medium uh, and, and really keeps them offline and and keeps them away from all the benefits of the Internet. So that's another uh, effect of hate speech online. And we need to recognize that there are these effects, and we, we really need to take them seriously and, as a society, address them.
1: Well, we thank you so much for the great book that you have and all the wonderful that you, work that you're doing with ADL. So why don't you just... Uh, Give us your website and the name of your book again, and then it will be time for us to go.
2: Sure. It's, uh, the, the website of the ADL is www.adl.org, and uh, if, you, if you drill down to the Civil Rights Division, you'll find information about the book. But, of course, it can be purchased at Barnes & Noble and Amazon Online, and it's called Viral Hate, Containing and Spread on the Internet.
1: Well, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing, and we're, we're thrilled that you wrote this book, and just let's keep together. Let's keep on... Uh, Notifying each other when you have new things going on so we can have you on again. Okay, Chris?
2: You're you're very kind, and thank you for all that you're doing. Okay,
1: Christopher Wolf, you're wonderful. Thank you. We'll have you on again. Good. Look forward. Bye-bye. You've been You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Thanks. Stay private.